I invite you to turn to John chapter 14. I'm going to read John chapter 14, verses 8 through 10. Short scripture this morning, but quite a bit the Lord wants to say to us, and quite a bit we can respond to him with. So verse 8 of John chapter 14. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. What is an essential element to faith? It's in these verses, but it's, hard to, it's, it's a little hard to see. You might not immediately grasp it. Well, this is the answer. Disciples sometimes deep in their hearts wonder, what's going on? What is going on? How is this going to work? What will be the same? What will be different? Questions have been a natural response for people for a long, long time. And John 14 brings it out. We started right in the middle of a conversation, and I'm going to expand on that so you can get the feel for the entire conversation in just a minute. But what I, what I read here, this request of Philip and this response from Christ, is part of this much bigger reality that people have questions. People get to situations or go through experiences that force them to say or Un, you know, almost unconsciously make them say, what is going on right now? I don't understand this. And this is one of those moments for these, this group of people 2,000 years ago. But what I read started actually in John 13. You can turn back a page if you want to. You can scroll up on your phone if you want to follow along. But what I'm going to do is kind of give you a sense of this night that's unfolding in this scripture I read to you. There's a group of disciples in what's commonly called the upper room. It was an upper room in a home, and they're having what Jews would have called Passover, which has inspired the communion that we take, and it's something that Jesus is doing with his disciples. It's the night before he's going to be crucified, but that's not really something they even get. They know it's Passover. They've done this with Jesus before, but they're not really aware of just how significant it is, so imagine yourself being there without knowing what we now know so easily. So Jesus is having dinner. They slowly start to realize something's changing, but they don't know what it is. So here's some of these verses, and here's some of what goes on in a quick fashion. In John chapter 13, 6, Christ begins by washing feet. And Simon Peter, one of the disciples, says, Christ, are you going to wash my feet also? To which Jesus says, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand later. I'm going to pause here, even though I said we'd just get into this. I have to stop here just to say, if you ever wondered what is the core of the Christian life, a major part of it is having Jesus look at you and say, what I do now, you do not understand, but you'll understand it later. That's part of this reality that we just have to face. If we're even going to sit at the table with Jesus, we're going to have to realize that he looks at it, he says, what I do now, you do not realize, but you'll understand it later. It's a key part of the Christian life. We can't escape it. Several verses later in John 13, 22, the verse itself says, 
the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know. Now, now this time, it's not just Simon Peter who's kind of not understanding and is going to have to figure out something later. It's the whole group of them. They're all befuddled. This gives me hope. Because these people spent three years with Jesus. They've eaten with him. They've drank with him. They've walked with him. They've watched him come into Jerusalem on a donkey. They've learned. They've seen him do miracles. They've watched him feed thousands. They've had amazing experiences with him. And here they are, completely at a loss for what to do and what is going on. It gives me hope, ought to give you hope as well. If they can be in this place spiritually, we can too, and we're going to be all right. Skip down 14 more verses. Verse 36, Simon Peter makes another appearance. He asks Jesus, where are you going? Christ answers Peter, and then Peter asks another question. Now we're in chapter 14, verse 5. Another man named Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? So the questions are sort of building on top of each other and expanding at the same time. And people are saying, hey, we're still not getting it. We don't know where you're going. We don't know the way. All these kind of things, these questions just keep multiplying. We're up to the fourth question, by the way, in case you're counting. And then comes John 14, 8, which I started with, where Philip said to Christ, show us the Father and it's enough for us. What are your questions for God? What are your requests of God? These disciples are in a time of transition, and as you can tell, Christ is bringing them along toward his crucifixion, but in the meantime, they're just asking lots of questions, and the more he talks, the more they seem to have questions. The more the disciples can start to realize, I don't think this is our average Passover. If you read all of John 13 to 17, you get a sense for it, but they would realize this is not our usual time with Jesus. He's washing our feet. And then in the middle of it, he and Judas, one of the 12, have this strange kind of conversation that's sort of tense and disrespectful and everything. And then Judas just leaves in the middle. As far as we can tell from the scriptures, he doesn't say, look, goodbye. I'll see you guys tomorrow. <laughs> Be back around. He's just out of here. What's up with that? Why did Judas just leave? He's, that's, that's bizarre. He didn't even say goodbye. And the disciples, I think, start to do what people often do in these situations. They get rattled. They get uneasy. They start looking for certainty. That's why I think Philip says, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Because they're, they're going backward with their questions. So finally, Philip's like, just show us the Father. It'll be enough. There's this grasp for certainty, this grasp for something that makes sense. He wants some in new information, some revelation of God, something that would be higher or stronger or new, and it would buttress his faith at this shaky moment. The serious transition, I think, is beginning to dawn on Philip, and he's saying, I want peace in my heart right now. I want reassurance right now. I basically want to find something that's enough to know that everything's okay. Staying content especially in a transition, is difficult. Whatever previously satisfied Philip, whatever used to work for him, whatever prevented him, he didn't go around every day saying, just show me this and it'll be enough. Just show me that, do this. Those things may not be enough anymore for Philip. And I say that as a description, not as a judgment, because I think that's true of most people. They start to realize there's this past experience that isn't quite working anymore for me. And, and there's no criticism from the scriptures. There's no second guessing. There's no judgment in that. It's just that humans feel a need for certainty at certain moments in life. 
And I think most people even have a hunger that's just kind of insatiable. It just can't be satisfied. It just needs something more. And that's not disrespectful. There might be a few of you who don't know what I'm talking about. You're just content all the time. You're pretty smooth. You're like, hey, life is great. That's genuine answer, like always doing good. That's awesome for you. But when I hear Philip say, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough, I can understand that feeling. And yet Christ says, have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me? Part of Christ's response, I think, boils down to saying, when will my words and actions, my love and my presence, when will my work, when will my prayers, when will my love be enough? And I don't think I'm much better than those disciples because I've got all my own. Lord, show me this and that'll be enough. Do this and that'll be enough. Please accomplish X and that'll be enough. If you could only just, just this, God, just, just one more thing, God, and that would be enough. I wanted to know, since I'm still not necessarily knowing everybody really, really well here, does anyone have a PhD in ancient Near East linguistics? Any, like, PhDs? Ancient Near East linguistics? I'm sorry if you have other PhDs in other kinds of languages, but I really need for a minute, like, ancient Near East. I'm getting a lot of... Does anybody want one? Nobody? Me either, frankly. I don't want one either. So if you do, more power to you. But I'll just point out this little thing, which won't get you a PhD, but I think it'll help you just a little bit. Grammatically, what goes on is Peter's, uh, excuse me, Philip says, show us the Father and it'll be enough. And Christ responds with a question and a statement and a question and a statement, which I think something's going on there for Christ to be so structured about his response. And I think this pattern is asking questions to Philip and answering questions, but it's all for Philip's sake. It's to kind of lead Philip out of his questions. And while you're inching toward this unofficial PhD of yours, you'll notice that Christ's response has two parts. Number one, he says, who is God? How well do you know him? How well do you know him? And number two, do you recognize that God's at work even in your mystery, Philip? When Christ says to Philip, the words that I say to you I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Christ completely addresses Philip's unease and his anxiety and his nerves. He completely speaks to that. But the disciple still doesn't get it. And these are confusing sort of actions and works. It's hard to get our head around when we're in Philip's moment. But we can trust God's actions for one reason. And it comes from 1 John 4, 4 that puts it best. The whole scripture would teach this, but 1 John 4, 4 says it really well. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Greater is he that is in those who've trusted Christ than he that is in the world. In other words, Satan. Because God is greater than Satan, we can trust his actions, even when we don't get what's going on. No matter how disappointing our moment is, no matter how much we feel like we're in Satan's crosshairs, we can trust the works of God. There are mysterious moments for us, but God's works will ultimately prevail. And I want to be honest with you, we have a bright future. And it's not because we're smart and hardworking and faithful and sacrificial and we get up early and stay up late. It's because Romans 8.28 says, God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for the good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. 
Now back to the PhD that some of you are trying to earn. Look closely at Jesus' moments with the disciples, and you'll see that Christ is a genuine person. He is the God-man. He says in verse 6 of 14, I skipped over it, but he says in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. He is the God-man relating to a human being, Philip, who has questions and requests. And in other words, they've got to communicate and get to the heart of the matter. Jesus is really present having this conversation with a human being. And the reality is Philip has to answer, when will I be satisfied with these events that God is orchestrating in my life? What will be enough? When will I say it's enough? And what if God's enough isn't the enough that Philip's asking for? Then what happens? So Christ answers Philip's question with a question. Have you not come to know me? And that's a clever way to get Philip thinking, to come sideways at Philip a little bit and make him get out of his own rut of thinking and say, well, have I come to know Christ or have I not come to know Christ? Then Christ makes a statement. Then Christ kind of tightens it in on Philip a little bit. I think he challenges him a little bit. and He says, do you not believe? He gets right to the heart of the matter. Do you not believe? That question, followed by the statement that comes next, I do not, this is Christ, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. That's Christ's specific response to Philip's sincere request. And Christ's statement about the Father doing his works defines the choice that Philip has to make. Because see, what's happening is in this conversation, reminder, it's, it's Christ and Philip talking, so they're both doing this together. What's happening is Christ's words and Philip's questions are creating a little bit of a contour, a little bit of a shape of what kind of faith Philip's going to have to have. What Philip requests and how Christ responds creates this shape, this place for Philip to surrender. It defines the edges, if you want to picture in your mind, edges of some shape. That's where Philip and Christ are. They're creating this shape. And Christ is saying, God is doing his work, and that'll have to be enough. He's filling out the shape. Christ says, what you're hearing from me is what God's doing among you. The resolution to Philip's request, the assertion that satisfies his appetite, is what God says to us in Christ. God says, believe me. Believe that Christ is in the Father and the Father is in Christ and nothing that Christ has said or done is anything of his own will. It's the Father working in him. In essence, just to really focus on Christ, I know this is deep, but it's important to really understand just how much of a focus is on Christ. Jesus is so identified with the Father. He is so surrendered to who God is that he says, what you see in me, what you hear from me, is actually God the Father. It's not even me, it's him. That's hard for us to get our heads around. John does, uh, John's gospel records this in chapter 5 and chapter 8 and again here in 14. There's all these places where Christ is saying, I am so radically submitted to who God is that it's not even my will. It's not even my words. It's not even my actions. It's the Father, it's the Father, it's the Father. We can't really get our head around someone who would say, you're not hearing my words, you're hearing God. Because we just probably, most of us on a human level, just don't quite think we're that close to God or that influenced by God that he's coming through us. The closest we get would be with 
children who act just like their parents, or a husband and wife who are so similar to each other, or two people who've worked together for a long time, or two people who went to the same school and they have a lot of the same characteristics. You come from the same part of the country. We see a little bit of similarity, but we really can't get our heads around just how similar Christ is. Nevertheless, the path into that level of obedience the path into that kind of identification includes your questions. But what do your questions reveal? Well, they reveal the shape of your surrender. In response to all of your questions, all your confusion, all your requests, all your speculations, all the stuff that kind of leaves you rattled a little bit, Christ makes a clear but simple declaration, I am in the Father and he is in me. And what's coming out of my life, Christ says to you, what's coming out of my mouth, all of my work, is all actually from God the Father who loves you. We have all these questions about our life, and God answers us, but his answers may surprise us, just as I think Philip and the others were surprised. My parents recently mailed me a book. It's a book on prayer. It's called Prayer Power by Brent Patrick McDougall. And in the book, he says this, the way to access God's power is not through more strategy or human effort, but through more surrender. Which gets me thinking, okay, well, that's, that's good, but what's that step? What's that action that I do to find my way of surrender? Well, I think the questions are. The questions are ours, and the answers are his, just as it was with these disciples in chapter 13 and 14. We've got to enter into the conversation and let the answers come from God. With your questions and your requests, what will be enough? To be honest, God's answers may not precisely fit our questions. I don't have my iPhone in my hand, and I don't know if Android phones do this, but if I'm putting in the key code to open and unlock my iPhone so I can call with it, if I type in the wrong sequence of numbers, the phone sort of like vibrates and like the, the keypad sort of wiggles, you know what I'm talking about? I feel like sometimes our prayer life can be a little bit like that, where it's like something's a little off, and so the thing kind of wiggles at me. It's not like it catches on fire or explodes, or I get some message that's like, you can't have it, service canceled, you know, and I get, you know, it's not this total failure, but it's just like something's not linking up quite right. And I feel like God's answers can be like that. And we want to say, that's just a number or two off, God. Let me try the question again. Because, I, I mean, you know, I'm talking to you, God, but, you know, in case you can't tell, like the wrong answer, wrong question, not, not really what I was looking for, God. His answers are spot on, but there have been times in my life when as I learned about prayer and I learned about God's will, I found myself at a crossroads with some kind of decision. And I thought, I really want to do God's will. The common sense spiritual thing would seem to be, I'll just talk to God. He's my father. I have questions. I'll ask. I'll pray. I'll wait for an answer. And here's what happened many times. I'd talk about the decision, I'd describe it to God a little bit, you know, he already knows, but I would bring it up and talk to him a little bit. And then I'd say, Lord, I'd like to know what your will is. And he would say, I love you. And being a, you know, pastor, of course, you can imagine what I would say, right? God, I thank thee, most eminent and worthy, mighty, who saw fit to speak down to, no, no, I was like, okay, God, let's try this again. I have a decision to make, you know, I would like you to show me what, please, you know, and he'd go, I love you. This was, you know, the time that this first happened, I didn't have an iPhone, so I couldn't have that little like jiggling moment of like the numbers aren't right. But I was just like, 
trying to find your will. He's like, I love you. And I'm like, we've been through this before. <laughs> not asking for affirmations, not asking for affection. I'd like to make a decision. <laughs> the heart of surrender is trusting God. God is good. He's loving. He's powerful. And he's all-knowing. And sometimes when we ask his questions, he doesn't answer them the way we thought he would. And we want to say, it's enough if you would just do this. And he says, trust me. Do you see what I'm doing? I'm working. Do you trust me? We can follow him and let him lead our lives. We can give generously. We can sacrifice our time. We can volunteer when he's leading us to. We can share our lives with others. We can get uncomfortable. We can embrace divine challenges. Letting God be in control of our lives is the heart of surrender. It's the core of the Christian faith. Even the scriptures say, choose Christ as Lord, which means let Christ be the boss of your life in a sense. And it, it means then on some level that all of us started out or are in some kind of situation where there's parts of our life that Christ is not the Lord. And so the scriptures are saying, let Christ be the Lord. Choose Christ as Lord. What do our questions reveal? The shape of our surrender. I say the shape of our surrender because the questions include our heart what we're asking deep inside, but they also have particular contours, very precise points along the way of trusting him that are different for every one of us. That it's something we need to do or something we need to say or something we need to start or something we need to stop, and it's very precise for us. But our questions are so helpful because they reveal there's a particular time or place or situation or challenge, and that's exactly where we need to trust him. I'll give you an example from the scriptures. Christ... Not much longer after this passage I read to you, goes to a garden called Gethsemane. He's praying to God the Father. He's by himself, and he says, Father, if this cup can pass from me, and he goes on with his prayer. He said, this cup, and what he meant by that is this trial, this challenge he was going to endure of being crucified and dead and buried and rose again to, to come. But he is saying, if this cup, and it's not just some generic cup, it's not just something. It's not, well, you know, any, any cup will do, God. Just let it pass. Just, you know, he's saying this cup. If this cup can pass. And it's that exact cup that he had to surrender. It's that exact place he had to trust God with. Not the next day, not some other cup, not what's Philip going to drink, not what's Peter going to deal with, not what, not what happens to James or what happens to Jesus' mother in a year. None of those questions are his to surrender. It was that cup at that moment that he had to surrender. Our requests of God are always particular. Our submission is always specific. Yours might be different than mine, but what we have in common is we have questions that reveal the edges of where we can surrender. And it's tremendously helpful because if we're confused about where we surrender, how we trust God, we look at what's bothering us. We look at what's creating these requests of God. Our questions reveal the shape of our surrender. I've never been tuna fishing out in the Cape, but I've heard about it, like out in the ocean. I've heard that there are these huge canyons, like gigantically deep canyons. And if you want to catch the really big tuna, you go way out there, dozens of miles, maybe 100 miles, I don't know, way out there, there's these canyons. My father-in-law introduced me to this idea by playing a song. I think it was about Billy Joel. I don't remember, but it turns out maybe some of you can help me. Billy Joel wrote this song, I'm pretty sure about canyons, and it's all about tuna fishing off of Cape Cod. And there's this deal where you can go way out there and catch huge tuna. 
But you know, you can also go way out there and just be lost. You know, you can just go way out there and get to some other country or just way out there and find yourself like in Florida or something. And so you have to know where you're going. And your options for that would be hire a guide, which costs lots of money, fill up the gas tanks, drive the boat way out there. They presumably know what they're doing. Or there's people that have gotten maps. And these are often called contour maps. You can get these for hiking. You can get these for fishing and bodies of water. But if you've ever seen it, it's, in this case, it'd be underwater, or it could be of a mountain, and it's a series of circles. And they're not circles like a bullseye that's real geometric and perfect. It's really squiggly, strange shapes. And it might be like a mountain peak is this tiny circle, and then there's a bunch of squiggles that kind of go this way, and there's a bunch of squiggles that go this way, and a big, and you get more and more and more. And you got all these circles wrapped around each other, but they can get kind of squiggly and crazy. And they can get really close to each other if it's like a steep mountain or a deep canyon, like these tuna canyons I'm talking about. They can get really, really close because the water's getting deep really fast. It's a sudden drop off and the lines get really close. Or if it's super flat and gradual, these contour lines can be really far apart. And the map works all of this out for you. I mention this to you because this kind of map is a little bit of what our questions create for us spiritually. If we want to think of it that way, each of us can have a spiritual contour map and we can look at our lives and go, what are my questions? And what have God's answers been? And what are my questions? And what have God's answers been? And we'll find some of these lines are really close together because it's a steep, rugged place where the water's dropping off super fast or the mountain is really steep. And other times it's pretty shallow and pretty gentle. What the disciples are in in John 13, 14, it's one of these moments where the lines get really close together and it's steep and it's rugged and it's a deep drop. Our questions for God and our transitions, our moments, the things that stir up our requests, create these lines and direct our surrender. I encourage you, what map would you create? If you could take a journal or sit down with a friend or however you sort of get reflective, maybe take some time this week even just to say, what are my questions? What are my big questions? What are the big points that if I was just sitting down with Jesus at a table, I'd say, show me this and it'd be enough. Tell me that, and it'd be enough. And see what he says, because your question's part of those squiggly lines that you've got to draw, but his answers are part of those squiggly lines too. And I think you'll find that your line's here and his line's here. Or your line might be here and his line might be over here if it's a gentler stretch. But either way, there's a map that can appear and reveal, where do I need to trust God? I'll start to wrap up with something interesting. Some of you are still hoping for that PhD, and I'm going to get you a little closer You'll notice that verse 8 begins with Philip saying, show me the Father. And verse 10 ends with the same idea, seeing the Father. Philip makes his request, show us the Father and it's good enough, and it's good enough. it'll be enough. And then Jesus ends verse 10 by saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So those contour lines, Jesus is putting it together for Philip. He's creating a shape of his surrender. He's not totally giving him ridiculous answers that don't apply. He knows what he needs to say. He says, when, when you look at me, Philip, you see the Father. When you look at me, you see what the Father is creating in your life. I think Christ probably has the PhD in ancient Near East languages, just a guess. I don't know if they had PhDs back then, but he's pretty good at this language thing. He knows that Philip's heart needs to see the Father, wants to see the Father, and Jesus says, here he is, Philip. Here he is. It's in me.
And if God is so trustworthy with those disciples and their questions and their struggles and their requests, how much more so would he be with ours? We can absolutely trust him. For these people, it's different for us now. It's a different chapter of sorts. But for these people, they're about to undergo a massive transition. Jesus is going to leave. They're going to watch him get crucified. They're going to watch him go into a tomb. That's huge. Then he's going to come back to life. That's even more huge. Then he's going to go back to heaven in a mysterious way and just kind of move out of the sky and go back to heaven and say, I'll be back and it will look the same when I come back. And then he's gone. And he says, I'll send the spirit and the spirit comes. But everything has changed for these people in massive ways. The training wheels are off their bicycle, you know. They're the new employees who are like paired up with the veteran employee that kind of always knows what to do and has got the situation figured out. Like a veteran employee is gone. Training wheels are off the bike. Everybody's on their own. Some of you know like you can give children a smartphone and it doesn't have a data plan. So they get to be like mom and dad, but they don't have a data plan and they can't really use it and the functions are real limited. In this moment, for, for them, but especially for us, Jesus is like, here's a smartphone with unlimited data. All bills paid. It's totally yours. These moments are scary. They're exciting. It's like great potential, but it's also like, what's going on? I'm not too sure what to do. Here's what to do. We make our requests known to God, and we find out he's already been answering them. We go to God and say, show me the Father, and it'll be enough. And he says, haven't you known me? How long have I been with you? If you see me, you see the Father. In other words, I was doing it before you even asked for it. Our questions reveal the shape of our surrender, and God's answers are a key part of that. Jesus is giving us an opportunity to find ourselves more fully in the hands of God. Things change, or have changed, or will change, and we have questions and confusion. Some of you are wondering, when's this sermon going to be over? Not much longer. Jesus gives us a chance to take off the training wheels, get out of the boat, renovate our hearts, Let go of something from the past. Embrace something for the future. Unfamiliar territory, moments of transition. I mean, I can trust God. I can obey God even more. You have an opportunity to more fully place yourselves in the hands of God. You can deepen your trust. Your questions are worth knowing. Your questions are worth asking. They reveal the shape of your surrender. Let's pray. Father, I think it's wonderful that You always help us learn. There are a lot of ways that life outside of your family feels like we have to know it all. Can't have any questions. Might not be a good idea to ask questions at work or bring up the wrong thing with family or seem like we don't know what's going on, but we see a different picture when these disciples were sitting at the table with you. They could get really genuine and say, what are you doing? Are you going to wash my feet? What? That can, that this, this starts to make no sense. Judas is leaving. You're washing feet. You're talking about strange things. We're having Passover, but things are not the same. People are welcomed into the table, able to ask their questions, able to make their requests, and that's the God that you are. And we praise you and we glorify you. We need spaces like that in our life. And I thank you that there's no condemnation. There's no rejection. There's no abandonment that that you, you talk with us. You enter into the conversation and we find out that what we're asking for is what you're actually giving us. We just didn't recognize it. Please show each one of us through your scriptures, through journaling or reflecting, through driving, through sitting around tomorrow night at family altar, wherever it is, please speak to us so that we can get a sense. What are the edges of our surrender? 
What are the places where we've got some requests we really haven't brought to you, some questions we really haven't answered in front of you? Help us to remember them, help us to ask them, help us to sense what your answer is in the moment with hearts of faith, but also hearts that are a little bit uncomfortable and choosing to trust you anyway. We thank you so much that we can keep growing, we can keep learning, we can keep trusting. We thank you that even though we're like these disciples who do not understand these things now, but we will later. And we praise you. There's no God like you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.